and he sat down. Seems like a good idea. I would like to invite all of the little kids to come up here for a children's sermon. So if you happen to be a kid, please come up here and sit with me for just a few minutes. Is there any little kids here? There's at least one. Yeah. You can come sit with me. Hey! Come up here. Yeah, right up here. Come on. Yeah, come on up. Hello. Hey. All right. Sit down and we're going to talk about something that Jesus talked about when he was giving this sermon to all of those people. Jesus said this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to tell you a couple of stories. So, my dad used to like to get cars out of a junkyard, and he would drag them home, and he would fix them up, and he would make them look really, really nice and new. And so we always had a few old cars that were way back behind our house that he was thinking about working on. And one day, my friends Shane and Earl and I, we were out playing, and Shane said, look at that old car over there. It's all rusty and old, and the tires are flat. Wouldn't it be fun if we broke out all of the windows with some rocks? And we thought about it, and of course it would be fun. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder if I should do this. Is it a good idea to throw rocks at the windows in the car and break them all out? But I was afraid that Shane and Earl might make fun of me if we didn't do it. And so, you know what I said? Okay, let's get some rocks. And so we got some big rocks, and we went and we threw them at the windows, and they cracked, and they smashed, and it was so much fun until dad found out that wasn't so fun sometimes people will tell you to do things you know that you shouldn't do and you're afraid that they'll make fun of you if if you don't do them and sometimes they'll get very angry with you if you don't do bad things isn't that strange And that can happen when you're a little kid, and it can even happen when you're an adult. So, much later on, when I was an adult and I was a pastor, there was a man in our church whose name was Mr. Max. And Mr. Max said, I really need to have a meeting with you and talk with you about some stuff. And I said, okay, let's sit down and we'll talk about some things And Mr. Max said that there are some things that I had been doing wrong as a pastor. And I said, really, what are those things? And he says, you keep talking about things like sin. And you see, if you talk about things like that, people are going to be sad and they're not going to want to come to church and our church won't grow and we won't have money. And so Mr. Max talked about all of these things, and I was polite to him. And I knew that Mr. Max was a very powerful man. People listened to Mr. Max. And if Mr. Max got mad at me, I was going to be in trouble. 
And so you know what I did? I did a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments, and they were all about sin. (laughs) Because Mr. Mike is kind of hard-headed and stubborn. And when somebody tells him to do something that's wrong, at this point in my life, I don't tend to listen to them very well. And Mr. Max was very, very angry. What are you going to do when somebody tells you to do something wrong or believe something that is wrong? Not do it. Right. That's what you should do. But it's so hard sometimes because you know that they'll make fun of you. They'll get angry with you. Even if you happen to be an adult, it doesn't... In fact, it's worse when you're an adult. People get much more angry when you're an adult. And so you have to remember when people start to do bad things to you because you're doing good things, you need to remember something. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. There's going to come a time when Jesus is going to be with us and he's going to take us to his house and no one is ever going to tell us to do bad things again. And we're going to be there with a Jesus who loves us, a Jesus who died for us, a Jesus who paid for our sins, and at least then, everything is going to be nice and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we pray that you would give all of us, children and adults, the ability to stand our ground when we need to do what is right. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go to your seats. you this morning to hear your word. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. And Father, as we continue on the, on the Beatitudes and the children's sermons that we've had the last two weeks and continue into the adult sermon, Father, I pray that you would just impress upon us what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Trung, would you take the tops off the lights just a little bit? So, um, how many of you have been watching the series The Chosen? Chosen. How many of you like that series? So, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been loving that series. I, I went to the movie. Kelly uh, is really into The Chosen. So, I've got a wife who's really into it. She's gotten me into it. Um, I went to the movie opening of The Chosen, the beginning of the season, went with Brittany and, um, and Tabitha, and then we just went to it again, so if anyone wants to go to the movie, I'll, I'll definitely go again with them, but we just went to it um, uh, uh, yesterday. And one of the things that The Chosen kind of helped open my mind, uh, one of the things that's great about a scripture reading and a meditation style that I learned of scripture is when you're going through a passage, I'll get to difficult passages and passages that I'm wrestling with, passages that I'm thinking about, especially in the Old Testament, is I'll lay back and think and put myself in the passage. It's an old meditation technique. 
And I'll think about a character. I might read it through two or three times, and I'll put myself in that scene. You imagine the breeze. You imagine the dust. You look around. You think about it, and then are you one of those characters? Which character are you? You'll find yourself being in the scene when it's read to you, right? What kind of scene is it? Now, it was interesting when I learned this meditation technique. Uh, it, it was actually an old uh, early church technique, and then it was a monastic technique, and then it was at RTS. They taught us as this fancy Puritan technique, and I had a I raised my hand and said that was actually a monastic technique, which they didn't want to hear because they were Presbyterian, of course. But it's a useful technique nonetheless. You engage your imagination because we are supposed to engage our imagination. Jesus tells us parables because we are supposed to engage our imagination. The Psalms, in fact, engage our imagination. They are songs, they are poems, they're stories. And so when Jesus and the Chosen, I love the Chosen, it's a fictional series, it's imagining the day-to-day lives of Jesus and his disciples, and it's kind of been helpful to me to just see some things that the authors have brought out because they're doing, um, and they're having to imagine this stuff, and I'm like, oh yeah, that might be how it worked. Now, one of the things I talked about last week with the kids, um, but I had thought about this a while, and, and Chosen brings this out, is how in the world would a preacher be preaching a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount uh, and, and get that out there to crowds of thousands and thousands and thousands? Would Jesus have just preached a sermon once, or would he preach it many times if he's going through the countryside, right? If he wants many people to hear a teaching, do you think he just taught it one single time? Well, of course not. He taught it many times, He wandered through towns and villages and the countryside, and he would teach these teachings many times. The crowds would come out and hear him, and he would be in his location, and he would teach, and he would teach, and he would teach, and he would teach. This is likely how the disciples learned and passed this on. They understood. Now, when I was at Virginia Tech, I I had all these teachers who actually wrote textbooks for a lot of seminaries, and they wrote all of the, what I would call German liberal, uh, these are uh, theologically liberal textbooks, and they would constantly question the Scriptures. Well, look, Matthew writes it this way, and Luke writes it this way, or Genesis has it this way, and later it has it this way, and clearly these are contradictory, and so the Bible is just false, it's all made up, this is ridiculous. And I used to raise my hand at the beginning. I'd be a little perplexed, and then the end, I would raise my hand, and the teachers would just silence me because I got pretty good at pointing out the fallacies that they had. Now, engineers will be pretty good at showing this fallacy. You can tell me this. We think, we think, we hypothesize, we suppose, we suppose, we think, we think, this proves. Can you get there? And so I would say, and I would begin to point out all the time, that's, that, that can't be, right? So what would happen with the Beatitudes? We get to the Beatitudes, and what's very interesting is that when Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes, which means, do you remember from last week's children's sermon? The Beatitudes is Latin for blessing. And we remember from earlier sermons that Latin is a good language or a bad language. A bad language, that's right. It was the language of the conquerors. The Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew. Good languages. (laughs) 
So, Beatitudes means blessed, of course, the blessed's there. But Jesus preaches these sermons, and you have one of the Beatitudes given in the Gospel of Matthew, another one in the Gospel of Luke. And here we see in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is giving the sermon on the? And in Luke, he's giving the sermon on the? Not Mount. Not Mount. What? In Matthew, he gives a long one. In Luke, he gives a short one. And of course, my teachers would point this out and say, hey, this shows hypocrisy. Matthew 5.1 says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And in Luke, Jesus preaches on a plain or a level field, Luke 6, 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And he stays down a little lower, and then he proceeds to give a little bit of a different sermon. Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, while in Luke, he says, in Matthew 6, or Luke 6.20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and then blessed are the poor. Why would Jesus say two different things in two different gospels? Well, we might say, well, obviously, clearly, Luke is talking about the poor all the way through in his gospel, and that is a theme in Luke. And then we might say Matthew is doing this, and we might say faulty memories. Or did Jesus give different sermons? Now, if you have preached sermons or given teachings, how many people have here have given teachings to different groups? Suzanne has. Huh? When you give teachings, many teachings to different groups, have you changed your teachings and found that your teaching changes when you give them to different groups? If I am teaching to this congregation and then I go give the same teaching to a group of teenagers, a group of children, a group of bikers, a group of non-believers, a group in a homeless shelter, do you think the teaching is going to be the same? Christians, non-Christians, wealthy, poor, the teaching is going to change. So, if Jesus was giving teachings in one region with Gentiles, another region with Jews, one region with rich aristocrats, another region with poor, one region with rabbis, another region with less educated and trained people, what about fishermen or this or that? Do you think it would change? Good job. It would. And so if he's talking about the poor, do you think he might be ministering to the poor? Yeah, pretty good. He'd probably be ministering to the poor. See, Bo knows. I think in Matthew, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's probably speaking to a group struggling with depression or lacking spiritual maturity or the maturity of maybe the rabbis and the Sadducees, right? It could be because of Roman conquest. It could be because of extreme poverty. Perhaps in the crowd, tragedy had occurred, and Jesus was speaking to them. In Luke, he's speaking to in a group that includes impoverished people. Or, on the other side of it, 
He could be speaking to audiences which look down upon those people, right? Maybe he's speaking to rich people who don't like poor people. In Judaism, in that time, if you were poor, you earned it. You were cursed by the Lord. Something bad had happened to you, right? If you were sick or ill, why we read this later on, why was this man born blind? Something bad happened to them. Or their children. There was a sin. It wasn't actually taught in Scripture earlier, but it, it was thought to be this. Look, Jesus is God and He knows this group. But for you and for me, this teaching is profound for the same reasons. If we're reading the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, and we're the people looking down upon those who Jesus calls blessed, then we need to hear what He says in all of these Beatitudes. Why? Why do we need to be cautious about looking down upon people? Look, we're all made in God's image, right? Everybody is made in God's image. So when Jesus goes through the the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, when he says, blessed are the poor, when he goes through all of the blessings, He's showing us, look, we are made in God's image. We don't have greater or lesser value because of our situation in life or our living situation or the way we dress or act because we belong to a particular tribe or group. And this is a hard lesson for many of us. And this is something that even we as Christians have to fight. Why? Because almost everybody here, all of us, has some group or will have some group that we think lesser of. It kind of creeps into us all, right? I mean, think of that person now. Like, do you have a group or even a person that you think lesser of? Now, we get there in some ways. Sometimes we're just being mean to somebody, but There's a group we think lesser of because at some level, we are all intensely tribal. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We, through all of our history, have grown up in groups and tribes. In fact, even in the United States, until the invention of the automobile and trains and all that, most of us would never, did you know that, move and go beyond maybe a five or ten mile radius in our entire lives. And that's the way that society always was. And now we find ourselves moving all over the place constantly. But if you grew up never leaving more than a ten mile radius, do you think you would know everyone in your community? And it would be generation after generation after generation. Not only would you know everyone in your community, you would know their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and everybody would know everybody. This would be your tribe. Now, if somebody came from outside that area, they might be accepted or they might not be accepted, depending on if your tribe was, like, friendly or not friendly. But they would have to act in a certain way. They would be expected to act in a certain way. You might receive them or not receive them. They might be seen as weird if they're from really way out there and they don't speak your language and they don't have any of your customs. Or they might be seen as kind of normal if they're from a similar tribe. People are built to be in relationship. We can't be in deep relationship with everybody. We have somewhat of a limited range. So we have a family and then friends and then community And those ever-expanding circles are part of our tribes, and these tribes work to support one another. And as a collective, we help one another all along. And this is what we have done throughout history. But, 
right now we're in a strange era where we can travel great distances, like I said. And it's kind of broken up our tribe. So before we had tribes, and we might think our tribe is good and that tribe is bad, but now what do we do as Americans when we no longer have tribes? I grew up in Saudi and then Iran and in Northern Virginia. My family was there, and then now my family's all over the place. Now they've kind of come back for the first time ever, and we're all within a couple hours of each other. But we're still within a couple hours of each other. How about your families? Where are they? We're scattered. That's how we live. It's hard to be a tribe. Do you have lots of friends? Are those friends close? Or are you isolated? And when more and more Americans find themselves in this way, we become increasingly isolated. We struggle. And I think we're in a society now that struggles because we don't have a tribe, and so we're making artificial tribes. We're a hodgepodge people in the United States. We're a confused group. We tend to have small friend groups and fragile family groups because we move so far apart. Our tribe is increasingly artificially defined electronically. Gaming groups, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. How many have Facebook groups? We try to make imaginary Netflix shows our relationship. Remember the show Friends back in my day. And, and everyone was devastated when that show ended because for so many people, that was their friend group. We have online communities, and I see young people who their friend group is online. I, I once, when I was a youth leader, knew a guy who had this relationship and said, oh, yeah, I'm dating this girl. We had our first kiss, whatever. And then he was so excited because for the first time in life, he was going to meet her. The entire relationship had taken place online. And I said, I thought you said you had your first kiss. It was an online kiss, Jeff. We've tried to replace our larger tribal connections in with sports teams and political parties, but these things, they're artificial. They don't really hold together. Does anyone think that politicians make great leaders and are role models for societies? Do sports teams, really? I mean, like, we get together for Alabama games or Auburn games or whatever team, and we can talk about that for a little bit, but that fades away. It's not real. It's artificial. It's not true relationship. You might get a high when you go to the game, but then it disappears. And so as we fragment, we all tend then to have a they. We, we, we get in these groups, but there's always a they. Who is your they? Who is your they? They are not like me. I don't like that person, that group. Who is it? I want, I want to give you a little bit of time to think about they. Who's the they in your life? They are bad. They're unlike me or us. They dress differently, they speak differently, they act differently, they believe differently, they smell bad, they vote differently, they have the wrong accent, they have the wrong skin color. They have no religion, they have a different religion, they have a religion. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We look down upon them. So who is your they? Trailer trash, white trash, blue team, red team, old folks, young folks, particular generation, particular education, skin color, again, particular part of the world. Are they from France? Bad day. (laughs) Put that person in your mind. I'll give you a minute. 
Now listen to this. Jesus' words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when they say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So in your mind's eye, now, I want you to change that person or that group that you can't stand into Jesus. That's basically what he's telling you to do. Matthew 25, 40 says this, And the king answered them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And this is why we read the Beatitudes prior to confession in the Anglican church and in many churches. We're reminded how we are called to live and to love and to act. It reminds all believers how we are called to function and where we, are, where we fall short. And we all fall short. That's why we do confession at the beginning of the service. We all fall short. And so we seek forgiveness and ask the Lord to help us to move forward in these areas. All of us stumble. We all have to change. Now, for the other group. You see, Jesus was also speaking, or even mainly speaking, to people who were used to living legalistically. In other words, if you were a Jew in that day, you lived to fulfill the law of Moses. You had a set standard of behavior that you followed, and you lived in community, and you pretty much followed those laws, right? It was primarily about outward behavior. If you were a Jew, you had a checklist. You wanted to do these things to make yourself good. How many of you have a checklist? If I do X, Y, and Z, I'll be good and God will love me, right? I might have to have a quiet time this morning, and if I didn't have a quiet time, my day went poorly. I might do X, and then I'm going to be good. I might do Y, and then I'll be good, right? That's kind of how they lived. But here, In the Beatitudes, notice what Jesus is doing. Everything in the Beatitudes is asking you to change inwardly. And this was shocking to his audience, right? Jesus is signaling a massive change in what it is to follow God. Now, all of this was hinted at in the Law of Moses, and it was shown in the prophets, but many of the Jews didn't accept the prophets as the Word of God, especially the Sadducees. They only saw the first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the Bible to them. Many others didn't even accept the rest of the books. They only cared about the law of Moses. But here Jesus is teaching to radically transform from the inside out. That's what he's teaching all of us. We are called to change from the inside out. That's how you are called to live. Because of the death of Jesus, our sin's going to be paid for, and with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is now going to live within you. You're going to be changed, and you can call upon the Holy Spirit to change you. And then we are called to go out and live among the tribes, and then to call them to change. And because of this transformation, we no longer live within our tribe of Jews. That's what he's going to tell them. You no longer have these cleanliness laws and these dietary laws. You can't possibly follow those. And now you're going to go out and live, and you're going to transform, and you're going to be transformed, and you're going to call them to transformation. 
And this means you can't live in the same way. You can't judge them, but also you're going to love them like Christ loves them. We must see that all people are made in Jesus' image, including ourselves. We, of all people, know what Jesus has saved us from, and so we know that no one is unworthy of him. No one is lesser or greater. In God's eyes, Bill Gates is not more valuable than someone in a trailer park or poor African child starving. An elderly, feeble person is not insignificant because their memory is fading and they don't have all of their faculties. Our current society glorifies youth. God does not. Jesus says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are they when they, blessed are you when they say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So in Luke, he only mentions four categories, the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the reviled. But basically, Jesus says, all of those who are struggling are blessed. But he doesn't end there. He, begun, he goes on to say, those who become like God are blessed. When we are to be gentle, we are called to be gentle. We are called to crave righteousness. We are called to become pure in heart. We are to become peacemakers. Notice, he doesn't say peacekeepers. When you're keeping peace, you're usually keeping peace because you fear change or you're lazy. You don't want change. A peacemaker goes out and makes peace, brings reconciliation, goes into a situation of chaos, and brings the peace of the Lord. It's a dangerous proposition. It's a risky proposition. That's why peacemakers get persecuted. There's a cost to it. But they bring the peace of Jesus. And Jesus ends with this, as shall I. When you do these things, People are not going to like you. This world will revile you, he says. They will speak all sorts of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you when they, uh, when they do, he says. Look, as long as you're not being obnoxious, I know plenty of Christians who think they're being persecuted because they're doing the right thing, but in reality, they're just being obnoxious people. And you've seen them. We're not called to go out and be obnoxious, to scream in people's faces and to do stuff like that. We're called to share Jesus. We live in the faith. Worldly people won't always like what you stand for because the people of the serpent don't like the seed of the woman. It's a real thing. God's ways aren't always or even usually popular, but they are good and they are healing and they are life-giving. And if they have been that for you, then it follows that they will be that for others. But you got to live into them. We say the Beatitudes, so we'll memorize the Beatitudes. We say these so that they will be on our mind. That's why we cross. Put it on my mind, Lord. Help me to memorize it and think about it. Put it on my lips, Lord that I may talk about it and I may speak it. Put it on my heart, Lord, that it may sink in and become part of me.
Amen.